All right. Good morning, Jacob's Well. Good to see you and be here. Uh, I got a couple of social commentary things I think I need to make. You know, it was a couple weeks ago that uh, Pastor Scott, as a ruiner of good things, uh, gave away the wordle of the day. Gave away the, the wordle of the day, which I did not appreciate very much. Uh, I thought it was kind of like a, a credo to, you know, like not give it away. You know, credo is a, a set of values that you kind of live by. Five-letter word I came across earlier this morning. Um, so I just, I don't know, I thought that's kind of how we did things. Uh, you guys are in it this morning. That's great. That's great. Uh, but I also got to give, give props to, to Pastor Scott's alma mater, Cornell, uh, in the real March Madness, NCAA wrestling that happened this weekend. I uh, was watching them last night. They took away a couple of national titles, including one over a Penn State wrestler, which is always a good day when Penn State loses. I know. I know. We're in Jersey here. so. Um, and then, you know, basketball, March Madness, I'm, I'm grieving as a Rutgers fan. I know Pastor Rich is as well. Um, really grieving. But New Jersey as a whole, I mean, Princeton and Fairleigh Dickinson, my bracket is obliterated. I had, I had the two teams that Princeton and Fairleigh Dickinson beat. I had those two teams in the finals. Uh, but you could take a guess at who my eight- and six-year-olds picked to win those games, Princeton and Fairleigh Dickinson. <laughs> so next year I'm doing the mascot thing like they do. That's just, that's just what we're doing. Uh, so lots of, March, lots of March madness happening. I think, Jalen, did you say it was munch madness? That's the well-teens thing? I love that. That's great. That's great. Have some good, some good munchies. So uh, all right, enough of that. Let's look at this passage here. Um, I'd love to be like, I said all that because this passage happened in March, but I don't know when it happened. Uh, but let's jump in here to just, yeah, to see what happens. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff here. Um, Cana, we've, we've seen this before. This is the place where Jesus first did his first miracle, the first sign that John mentions as he kind of adds his own commentary throughout his gospel and talks about these signs, these signs, these signs, the first sign, the second sign, the third sign. I think there's seven of them. Um, and so this is the second one that we read about, and it happens again in Cana, which is about 25 miles or so from Galilee, where Jesus is. So where this, uh, where this man comes from, it's about a 25-mile journey. And I tried to look back at how much time had passed. There's a couple of markers in there. There's a couple of feasts that you'll see throughout the book of John. It was the Passover, and it was time for the Passover, and it was time for the Passover. There's three of those, so those are years in between. A couple other feasts that are mentioned. There's a couple of times where it says Jesus stayed for two days in Samaria. And then for some time, he spent in the wilderness and different things like that. So I would say this is about six months or so later. Uh, I, don't think it's a whole, I don't think it's a whole year, but it's not just like a week or two later. I think probably about six months is, is as much as I could tell. Um, and so there's probably still a buzz going on in this town that, that this, you know, this guy came about and he did. Did you, you remember the water wine thing? Man, that was nuts. There's still kind of this buzz happening. People are still tweeting about it and talking about it. It was still a thing. And so Jesus comes back, and people start to, to hear about it. And I, I think clearly John is, is wanting us to understand as readers that this whole thing, from the start, his first trip to Cana to his second trip to Cana, there's a lot that happens in there. And John is kind of presenting it as a unit, um, as it works together, as John visits, as Jesus talks with Nicodemus, then he talks to the woman at the well. Now he's interacting with this official. But here we see that Jesus is not limited to just his, his physical presence, that his power is far beyond that. 
So this official comes down, and his, his son is sick to the point of death. And we get to see the first of Jesus' healings, at least recorded in, in this gospel. And there's some debate, not that it's super important, but there's some debate about who is this official. Is he, is he a Gentile? Is he a non-Jew? Which, if so, would be kind of a cool progression through Jesus' own great commission. When he tells his disciples, hey, you'll be my witnesses, Acts 1, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where he talks to Nicodemus, in Samaria, woman at the well, and to the ends of the earth, meaning Gentiles, non-Jews. This, uh, this would be that third category. It was kind of a cool progression. Most biblical scholars and people smarter than me would say it's, he probably wasn't a Gentile. He probably was a, a Jewish official in service of king, quote-unquote, Herod, who is, who is not a good dude. We, we meet him a lot throughout the Gospels, and he's beheading John the Baptist, and he plays a role in Jesus' crucifixion, and just not a good dude. Not a good leader of God's people in any kind of way, if we could even say he was leading them. And this official is most likely works underneath that, that service. So he's kind of a high-ranking guy. So another way we could look at it is, as Jesus interacts with the, the, those of high status, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, this official, and then those of, of very low status, the woman at the well, the, the lame man that we meet in the next story, that Jesus is covering the gamut of people whether high or low, he's offering grace and mercy and all the things that we as humanity need. So whether it's, whether it's this official is a Gentile or not, uh, Jesus is still ministering to the masses, and there is no exclusion. He's not uh, prioritizing anybody over anybody else, except perhaps, perhaps for those who are suffering and who are in most need. And so this guy comes, and he says, hey, Jesus, can you come down and heal my son? He's at the point of death. He's asking him, would you... Like, I know you got some power. You did the whole water-to-wine thing, and there's maybe some other stories that are going around that we don't have recorded. And, hey, if you come, that's the only hope that I got, if you would come and heal my son. And this is interesting. Jesus, it's almost like he ignores him. I mean, Jesus knows what, he, knows what he's doing, but he, he addresses it, not just him. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. And the you there is actually plural. So he's not even, like, talking back to this guy. He's kind of saying, hey, to everybody in Cana, around here, like I know you're really excited about the whole water, but you're just in it for the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the, and the Snapchats and the pictures that you can take to post on the internet. But again, he doesn't really even address that guy. The you is plural. So it's, it's like he ignores him, which kind of bothered me a little bit. It's like, Jesus, I don't, I don't really see you as one to like ignore people. I kind of thought you were pretty kind and warm and that you would listen. So what, what's going on here? Jesus is not wrong about people being all about signs and wonders. And signs and wonders aren't even a bad thing. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of God's people, even the early church, God used signs and wonders, the miraculous, the supernatural, as kind of a, a stamp of approval or a way to back up who he, who he was, what he was doing, why his people should trust him. But as a lot, of, a lot of commentators I looked at this week were saying, Jesus ultimately wants us to be able to trust him at his word, that we wouldn't have to rely on or even demand signs, and wonders. Jesus seems to rebuke the people of Galilee for their interest in signs and wonders. He'd rather have those who trust in his word. One commentary I looked at said this, he doesn't reject the miraculous, but rather rejects any demand for a miraculous sign and wonder. Again, God, signs and wonders aren't, aren't a bad thing. In fact, we could say that our entire faith is based upon the sign and the wonder and the miracle of the resurrection. Like, that's a supernatural thing that happened that we base our entire faith on. And yet, 
Jesus ultimately, he wants to move us beyond, not beyond the resurrection, don't hear me say that, but beyond, we got to have a miracle. I got to have some kind of sign. Give me something. Would his word just be enough? And that's what he's calling out these people on, that they're just, their sole focus is sign. Give us another sign and wonder. And Jesus later says in one of the gospels, the only sign that you're going to have is the sign of Jonah, which is a, a, a foreshadow of his death and resurrection. That's the only sign that we need. Other than that, he says, would, won't you just trust in my word? The, the danger of signs and wonders, uh, one, one other commentary I looked at called it sunshine faith. This kind of fair weather, hey, when things are going well, like I can trust in God. But when it's the stormy seas, like I don't know what's going on, Jesus. And, and if our hope and our faith is dependent on signs and wonders, what happens when there are no signs and wonders to see? What happens when it's been a really long time in between signs and wonders? Can we still trust and have faith when the sun goes behind a cloud? Those are real things that we have to deal with. And in many ways, Jesus may, also, may almost be testing this, this father, this official to see, are you in it for just the sunshine? Or are you really going to trust my word? Are you really going to trust that what I say goes, even if it doesn't look like, feel like, or sound like it? And yet there is a, there is a, a wondering of, is he, yes, he's using that word you, plural, but is he also addressing the father in a direct kind of way? Is he also direct, d- addressing this official in a direct kind of way, almost rebuking him or testing him? Like I mentioned, rebuke withstanding faith rather than sunshine faith. Rebuke withstanding faith is faith that stands even in stormy weather and hangs in there and just keeps asking. Even when that stormy weather is from Jesus, Jesus is, he's, he's, he's calling this guy out. And yet, what a lesson to learn from this, this dad who just keeps asking and asking that. And I love that, that he asks again. It's almost like Jesus ignores him, and then he ignores that Jesus ignored him. And he's just like, uh, can, you, can you come heal my son? Like, he's going to die. Can you, can you come heal him? Have you ever been, you ever been there? If at first you don't succeed, ask God again and again and again. Ever been in that place? Like, Lord, are you, are you even listening right now? Are you even hearing me? So I'm going to ask again. What a lesson to walk away with from this father. And so, again, if we zoom back out and we look at this round trip from Cana to Jerusalem, back to Cana over chapters 2, 3, 4, we see a lot of stuff that Jesus is doing and a lot of wrongs that he is writing, a lot of falsehoods that he's replacing with truth. He's talking about where the true temple is, about his own body. He's talking about true birth with Nicodemus. You have to be born again spiritually. That went over Nicodemus's head. He's talking about the true place of worship. He had this conversation with the woman at the well. No, it's not at this mountain or that mountain. Ultimately, it's in spirit that we worship God. And now the nature of true faith that ultimately would come in Jesus. And then he says these words in verse 50. Jesus hears him, and he says, go, your son will live. And I just, I don't know, I have, this is one of those, like, I haven't watched The Chosen. I know people keep saying to watch it. I'm sure it's great. I don't really have any reason that I haven't. I'm not, like, against it. But this is one of those, like, I, I've heard that these scenes that they depict just really put flesh on some of these stories. And I have to wonder, what did this look like? You know, did, did, did the man, I know it says right after that, the man believed the word and went away. But still, like, those words had to bring tears to his eyes of, like, okay, I hear your need, and I'm going to meet it. Your son's going to live. Like, what would that have done? I mean, he spent, I don't know how many days to travel 25 miles by foot. Maybe, maybe as an official, he had some sort of uh, 
some sense of horse. Maybe somehow Herod gave him a, a blessing and said, yeah, take, take the horse and the chariot. Go ahead. Just, you know, bring it back by, by 11. And, and, and maybe he, but he, he put in a lot of sacrifice and time to go and have this need met. And Jesus says, okay, it's going to be met. What would that have, have been like? I imagine tears, shock, maybe like, did I, did I hear you right? And so we don't know why he actually first came to Jesus. Maybe it was all about the signs. And yet signs can often be a first step, a first step towards true faith, in which then, like the father, we would turn around, like this father, turn around and say, okay, I'm going to trust you at your, your word. How do we know that he believed Jesus? He turned around and left and started to go back. The signs are, are ultimately meant to lead to an accurate understanding of who Jesus is, not just a belief in his power to work wonders. I love this quote. Go ahead and put that, that big quote up there, Tim, that I came across. just felt like it, it really encapsulated. It's obviously it's a long one, but it just, it just seemed to encapsulate really well this story and the whole signs and faith. Jesus' words alone should be enough to evoke saving faith, for Jesus holds all authority to do exactly what he says. He need perform no rituals, say no magic words, nor stir the emotions of a crowd to produce faith. He need only say the word, your son will live. And a boy near death, many miles away in Capernaum, is healed. The first and the second signs have in common the efficacy of Jesus' words. As Marion May Thompson notes, in both accounts of signs done at Cana, Jesus' word brings about the desired result. He commands the servants to draw the water, and they discover it's turned to wine. He tells the official his son will live, and the father discovers that his son has been cured. It's only by taking Jesus at his word. And ironically, it's the hated Samaritans and the royal official who at best is a Jew working for one who doesn't really care about the rest of the common people or at worst is a, is a Gentile. Those two, Samaritan and this guy, are the ones that take Jesus at his words. And it's Nicodemus and the Pharisees that fail to understand. And even Jesus' own disciples are slow to get it. And so again, Jesus is he's blowing categories here. He's breaking down barriers, might we say. And yet, like how real life is this? How, how often is this our experience? Another commentary, I had to rely a lot on commentaries this week, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes, uh, says this, honesty and experience would require us today who read John's text to say that our asking and trusting have not always been so quickly supplied as Jesus' same clear, go, your son will live. Meaning sometimes there's a long time, it feels like, between asking and hearing the promise of what Jesus gives us. This story is asking us to hear, to hear from Jesus, to come, to ask, perhaps to be rebuked, to ask again, perhaps to hear promise, to trust, to maybe ask again, and to go on our way. And so even though this seems like a pretty quick little thing, and I believe it is, this actual story, our experience, our life, it's just there's a lot longer in between, right? Like I think about Easter, which we're getting ready to celebrate, of course. The, the Saturday in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday was probably a really long day, and sometimes life feels like that. Like I even wonder, what must this walk home have felt like for this, for this guy, I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not trying to change scripture. I'm not trying to say what it says is not true. Like, he believed him. But he's also a human. And I just have to wonder, what was this journey home like for him? Certainly one filled with hope, but, 
Was there ever any like, is that really, like, am I really going to find him alive? I mean, that's what he said, so I guess, but uh, what if something else happens? What if he was healed, but now he's sick again by the time I get home? Or what if, uh, I don't know, what if I don't make it home? What if all these things? I mean, he, again, the guy's human. I have to wonder that some of those things were going through his mind. And I wouldn't blame him for it. That gap between the promise and the fulfillment sometimes can be a really, really long gap. And it, it, this week I was talking with Allison some uh, about hope in some different things. And the idea of where we have a, a Disney trip planned coming up, which is really fun and, and she's really excited about and keeps looking forward to it, looking forward to it, hoping in it. This is going to be great. And, but yet she said to me the other day, like, I know we're going to go, and even when we're done, there's going to be a, like, a little bit of a letdown. Like, it is Disney, but it's not, it's not going to be everything it's cracked up to be. Like, it's going to end at some point, and we're not going to have that to look forward to. But in heaven, right, she's preaching now. In heaven, like, we're not going to even need to hope. We're going to be living it right there. And it won't be unsatisfying. I won't leave, you know, ah, when can I go back to the throne room and get to worship? Like, it's just, it's, it's going to be it. And it just got me thinking, like, I wonder in the Garden of Eden, was there hope? Like, did they need to have hope when God's literally walking physical presence? I, I don't know. I would, I would argue probably not in, in heaven. I mean, I know Paul says faith, hope, and love remain, but this idea of, like, we, we won't necessarily, I don't think, need to look forward to anything. Maybe hope is this gift in the fall right now that we get to live and have, have a hope. Sometimes it is hope in a great meal. Sometimes it's hope in a good night's sleep. Sometimes it's hope in Disney, whatever it is. Little things to look forward to that are a foretaste of the ultimate hope that we have while knowing that all those little things along the way are going to disappoint. And yet waiting is really hard. Waiting for something we hope for is really, really hard. And I, I did a study one time on hope uh, in the Old Testament, and it was, a really, it was really fascinating what came up as I was looking at this, some of the different root words and stuff which hope is tied, they all translate hope or hopeful or to hope. There's even a little bit of an interesting uh, interplay between hope and waiting. But there was one place that I found where the word translated for hope, the Jewish, the Hebrew word for hope, wasn't translated into hope in English. Fascinating, fascinating discovery. In uh, as the Israelites were getting ready, God's people were getting ready to enter into the land God had promised them. This is after spending 40 years of hoping and waiting and wandering around the desert and not taking God at his word. They finally come to the edge of the promised land, and they're, they're getting ready to enter, but they're going to have to battle. They're going to have to fight for it, and God's going to give them victory, but they're going to have to fight for it. And they come to the city of Jericho, and they send two spies in to try to get a lay of the land and kind of figure out, all right, what's the game plan here? I think Jericho. And they come across uh, Rahab's apartment. Now, Rahab was a, a woman of the night. Why they came across her apartment, I don't know. That maybe is another sermon for another day, why they stumbled across there. But they did, and, and Rahab decides to help them out. And she decides to hide them from the other officials and leaders of the city so that they can get in and out of, of the city and do what they got to do. And for, for whatever reason, somehow she hears about their God and says, hey, when you guys come back to destroy my city, would you remember me and my family? Would you rescue me? And they're like, yeah, no problem. We'll do that. Again, not sure why they were so eager to do that. Uh, but, but they say, hey, you need to tie this scarlet cord to your window. We'll make sure that, that the rest of our, our military knows that, hey, when the, the, the house with the scarlet thread, scarlet cord, don't, you know, leave them be. And go ahead and put that, that, 
verse up there in Joshua 2.21 here, where it says, she said, okay, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. That word for cord is the same word for hope. She's literally tying her hope out the window, somewhat literally to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and this people that's about to ransack her city. She's tying her hope to that God. And God then weaves her into the lineage of Jesus, like pretty cool little plaque to put on the wall. That's hope. It's, it's what are you tying yourself to? What are you tying as you wait for the promise? This official was tying himself to Jesus' words. He was tying his cord, the rope, the anchor of his life. He was tying it to the words that Jesus spoke. Again, sometimes this is easier said than done. So this week, this week was really hard in a lot of different ways. Um, I know I've, I've told some bodily fluid stories in times past. I got another one for you. Uh, one of our kiddos had the stomach bug this week, which I know it's going around. This was like earlier in the week, and none of us have been sick since then, so um, hopefully nothing to worry about. But I know it's been going around. I know it's been going around this church. It's been going around our kids' school. It's just, it's going around everywhere is what I hear. All the sicknesses, stomach bug being one of them. And not only did, did one of our kiddos get the stomach bug in the middle of the night, but it was also the night that our four-month-old was awake the most. So it was just like, I mean, I could literally count up the minutes that I was asleep. It was just, it was one of those, one of those nights. I remember having the stomach bug a couple of times as a kid, and I don't know, traumatizing might be too strong of a word, but it left an imprint, and it was really, it was awful. It was just an awful experience as a kid. A couple of distinct times I can remember and, it, and, and I've always wrestled with anxiety, I don't know, always wrestled with con trying to control things, always wrestled with worry, and even within some of those terms, there's some delineations, like I think anxiety absolutely is a medical thing in which m God can meet in many different ways. Um, I heard it said recently, actually, I love this, that you can trust God and be on antidepressants and go to therapy, period. Amen to that, like you can do all of that. And medicine can be a gift from God through the people that he's created who are a lot smarter than I am. And so I, I wouldn't say I've ever, I don't know, I've never been officially diagnosed with any kind of anxiety or anything. doesn't mean it's not, it's not there. I just haven't been diagnosed with it. But I've always wrestled and struggled with that. And um, those experiences of, of the stomach bug as a kid, um, I would start to worry about that. Like, what if? What if this happens again? What if I get sick again? And I would, I would start to have these thoughts at times when, like, it wasn't even flu season. And, and there was no stomach bug going around. But what I started to recognize was that my body was responding um, to that fear as if there was a real threat. And these are some things I've learned in the last couple years that God is, this is, this is wild, but God has made our bodies to respond to danger, to respond to threats, right? When we have a perceived threat, a fear of something, right, our body responds in such a way to fight or flight. And there's been even a couple others that have been added to the mix, a couple other Fs, freeze, maybe a few more. And, and so... Your, your, your palms start to get real sweaty. The hair on the back of your neck stands up. Your, your stomach muscles kind of tighten up because blood is going to certain places to prepare you to either fight or to run away. This is fascinating. When there's actual danger, that's a good thing. When there's not actual danger, it's a false alarm. Right? The body is preparing for some threat that's not actually there. And so this would start to happen as a kid. I would start to, to get really freaked out about throwing up, 
Well, in the response to that fear, my body would start to feel kind of nauseous. And now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's actually happening. This is going to happen. And then, and then panic would just set in. And that would, you know, that would make my stomach feel even worse. And it would be the point where I could psych myself out of, of having an appetite, of sitting down to a meal as a kid, as a teenager. And then it's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I got to deal with this literally every time I think about food. Literally every time I sit down to eat, like this pops up. And it was, it was exhausting. And I didn't know what to do. My parents didn't know what to do. And this was a thing that um, I really had to wrestle through and deal with in a lot of different ways. And what was hard is, like, I knew all the Bible verses. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not worry about anything, but in all things present your request to God. Like, I could quote that in 17 different languages as a little Band-Aid, and it, and it didn't do anything for me. Cast all your care on him because he cares for you. It didn't do anything for me. So this is a real wrestling match. Part of the reason why I ended up going to counseling a number of years ago, I even did that as a kid some, and it's been kind of a, a sporadic thing that started to happen, that happened less and less and less as I got older. Kind of thought it would just be a thing that would, that would go away, but it pops back up every now and then. And it popped back up this week when my kid was throwing up herself, and I'm in the middle of the night, and it's getting three hours of sleep, and then, oh, I got to take, take care of other kids. This was our spring break from Rutgers from work, so I had a little bit of a break, but now I'm home all day trying to take care. God bless my, my wife for when she does that. But I was struggling. I was exhausted knowing that food is going to give me energy, but I'm almost too tired to eat. Now I'm thinking about the thing and panic. Anxiety is just setting in. And it was like an onslaught of fear and worry and, and literally all of the what ifs. You're like, what, what ifs? All of them. Every one of them. All the what ifs. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? I mean, just an onslaught from the enemy. I just felt paralyzed, almost like I could call my counselor right now. We just had a session yesterday, but like I got to call him. I don't know what else to do. This is where I'm at. Literally telling Allison, like, you got to help me. Like, I don't, I, with what, I don't know, but you got to help me. This is where I was this week. And it was brutal, exhausting. And so many people, so many people met me in the midst of that as I reached out for prayer. But it was like, Lord, I'm trying to trust you at your word. I'm trying to do these Bible verses. Like, it's just, it's not, it's not working. I'm waiting. I'm hoping. When is there going to be peace, like physically, that I can feel? Because I'm not feeling it right now. Right? What if this keeps happening? This is all what's going through my mind. And again, God bless Allison, the way that she listened and empathized. Right? For those of you that are doing the relational 101 discipleship right now, or for those that have done it before, like, guys, that stuff's real. Listening, being able to empathize and jump in and just sit with someone in their darkness, it'll change people's lives, change mine this week. That's real stuff. Don't discount that. And one of the things that she did say to me is, if his promises are true, then Matthew 11, where he says, all who are weary, come to me and I'll give you rest. Like, this isn't going to last forever. Rest will come. I don't know when, she said, but his promises are true. You can bank on that. And literally by faith, taking one step in front of the other, recognizing when I needed to say, I got to go lay down. I got I to gotta try to go back to sleep. I got to rest. Right? I know you're, you're tired too. It wasn't just like I was the only one up in the night all night long. But I, I got to have some rest. I got to get some space. This is what I need. And slowly, rest started to come. And it made me think, Allison was also sharing how she's reading in numbers right now, and God just constantly is reminding his people to worship and rest. Here's how you worship. Don't forget the Sabbath. Here's how you worship. Don't forget the Sabbath. And this hit me this week when I was trying to get our four-month-old to sleep. I don't remember for a nap or at bedtime or something, right? And I just sometimes look at our kids, and I'm like, 
you are going to regret every nap you're fighting one day. Like, I'm just telling you, right? Like, you just, you're going to, right? So just give into it, you know? And, um, and so I was trying to get her to sleep. Yeah, oh, the other thing I should mention, too, St. Patrick's Day this week, we always do, we always do a dinner for St. Patrick's Day. It's a fun thing, uh, corned beef and all this stuff. And um, another reality that was kind of looming for me this week is I actually had the stomach bug one time over St. Patrick's Day. This was the first year that Alice and I were married, and she doesn't do, she doesn't do the vomit stuff. And so even then in our first year of marriage, and I got permission to share this, like, I mean, I'm like, it's like happening. And, and this is our grandfather's house, right? And this is happening, and her mom is the one that's like rubbing my back, like consoling me. And Allison's like, I can't. If you ever seen Four Christmases, she's like, I'm going to do it too. Get it away from me. That was, that was her in this, this whole thing. So even that, though, was in the back of my mind, like, oh, we got some people coming over for St. Patrick's Day, and I got this thing going on. Like, I don't know if I can deal with this. And so, anyways, back to Alana trying to get her to sleep. And there's this, like, she's fighting it. I, like, I'm just trying to rock her. I'm trying to give her the passy. She's fighting it. And I'm like, kid, like, I'm trying to help you rest if you would just give into it. But you don't know that that's what I'm trying to do. And so you're fighting it. And the Lord was like, that's sometimes how it is with you and me. I'm trying to get you to rest. And I know it doesn't feel like it right now. I know it feels like everything else is falling apart. And this is like the worst moment of you. But like, if you just keep waiting, I'm going to get you to rest. And that was, that was a moment that I needed in a huge way. For Jesus to say, your son will live. So then he goes home and he's on his way. And his servants come and meet him and say, hey, guess what, man? You're never going to believe this. And I just, I have to think that that was a moment of like, okay, I knew it. It's really hard to believe it, but I knew it. But now it's actually here. Now it's here. And for me, that was yesterday on our Sabbath. Because I had dropped one of our kids off at their, uh, their activities, ballet or gym or whichever one it was. And I was about to drive back to the other one to go pick them up. And the Lord was just like, just pull over, right? Just like an audible voice on the radio that popped up, pull it. No, I'm kidding. It was just one of those, like, I think I should stop. I think I'm just going to pause and, and sit here, right? We don't over-mystify God speaking to us. And so I pulled over, and it was by some woods, and I still had some coffee in my, in my travel mug. So I just rolled down the window, just kind of sat there, and was going to do one of those daily offices. We talk about this and learn about it in Emotional 101 Discipleship. Guys, don't discount discipleship course. And so I was just going to pause for a couple of minutes to just sit there and be still. And it was like when those servants came and told the guy, hey, everything you've been hoping and waiting for, like, it's, it's, it's here, it's real, it's true. Because in that moment, God just peeled back a huge onion layer for me of some really core lies that I've been believing and operating out of, that I try to prevent bad stuff from happening, that I just, that, that everything I do, most of my operating system is to try to prevent bad or hard or challenging things from happening. And the Lord was just like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. I do that out of a life. I think it's loving, right? What loving person wouldn't want to try to prevent bad things from happening? Well, God doesn't always prevent bad things from happening. What he does is he works all things together for good for those that love him. That was the truth that I needed this week. And if I had to go through that whole week just to get to that moment for him to say, hey, this is how you're living, and I got so much more for you. I've got rest for you. It's like, okay, Lord, I think I can, I think I can walk through that. And that must have been what it was like for this guy when those servants came and said, hey, everything you've been hoping for. I know it was a long walk there and however far you started coming back. But he's healed. He's alive. 
right? And I love the, the excitement of those servants, right? I pray every one of us has some people like that in our lives that would start to come on a 25-mile journey to tell us that the need we've been hoping and praying for has been met, right? That would be really cool. Maybe we could be that for each other. And then he goes home and his, his whole family believes, right? Faith is contagious. His own faith is bolstered. He tells the story. And everybody's like, all right, we're in. I'll take that guy at his word. Wine or not, healing or not, we're in. Right? Where, do you, where do you need to pause and take God at his word? He's speaking right now, clearly. Where, where, do you, where do you need to trust God out of his word, even when it doesn't feel like, sound like, or look like it? And we've got a whole other healing to get through here. Um, so chapter 5 is another, another healing. And I was looking at this like, all right, why would John put these two together back to back? Like, there's got to be some comparison. And there's some debate over, is this a new section that is chapter 5 moving forward, or is this supposed to connect to chapter 4 and the other things? So I tried to even compare. Put up that slide of some notes. I tried to compare a little bit, and I know you might not be able to see this, but the green is the setting. These are the two passages side by side. The green is the setting. One in Cana, right? One back, back in Jerusalem, right? Uh, the red is the result, some healing. And then the purple and yellow is the interaction. And the yellow is the, the two guys, the official on the, what is that you're looking at, your left side, and, and then the yellow on the other one is the, the lame guy. And it noticed that the official, he initiates first with Jesus. And then, yeah, Jesus kind of hesitates or ignores him or like, why did he not respond right away? And the guy asks again. And then Jesus says he's healed. And the second one, the one we're about to look at, Jesus is the one that initiates. Like he just goes up to this guy and says, you want to be healed? And then the guy responds, and the guy almost, he almost hesitates, right? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't answer Jesus' question. And then Jesus speaks again and, and heals him. I just thought it was really interesting. And you see at the top, I, I just wrote, Jesus, why did you interact differently with these two guys? One, you're almost like, you know, ignoring, and the other, you just go right up to, right? Why did you do that? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. That was where I was kind of left. I, I personally think this is starting a new section that from, from here and then on into what we'll talk about in the coming weeks, that this kind of marks a, a turning of the page. Obviously, there's two healings. It's all connected. It's all scripture, right? But I think the end of chapter 4 is connected back to chapter 3, chapter 2, and I think 5 starts a new one. So it is interesting what's going on here. Let's try that map. We were joking in the production meeting this morning, um, right? It's pretty blurry, right? Can't read the words or see detail. We were like, ah, oh, man, they didn't wipe the lens off the drone when they took this picture you know, they didn't, didn't have the, uh, the software update, right? Um, but it's pretty amazing that they got the drone up in the sky to take this picture way back then, 2,000 years ago. So I don't remember. There were lots of people involved in that joke, um, and I thought it was great. And then somebody, we just kept going, and somebody's like, it's dead, guys. Lay it, lay it down. And somebody else was like, yeah, like the drone when it fell out of the sky. <laughs> Boom. Okay, but if you're looking at the top right, uh, you're not going to be able to see it, but the kind of wall thing that's on the right side, that's, that's part of the Temple Mount behind that wall, and on the other side of that Temple Mount is where this pool probably was, or where they think this pool was. And off to the far right is the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is just speculation, I don't know, but I, I wonder how many times, the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't just the like, night before Jesus was crucified, like that was a regular place he went. He had a, a regular rhythm of praying there, and that's why Judas took, took the soldiers there, because he knew Jesus would be there. And so I don't know how often he had been going there, but I, I just wonder how many times did Jesus walk by 
this five-roofed colonnade. Thank you for the detail, John. Five roofs. Um, I wonder how many times you'd walk by and seen these guys sitting there, seen these guys laying there. Right, there's all kinds of speculation and controversy. What's the, the water stirring up and all that? What's going on? I don't know. I just wonder how many times Jesus was, had seen that. And finally, for whatever reason, whether the first time or not, he decides that he's going to go up to him. And he asks this guy who'd been there 38 years, do you want to be healed? Right, particularly noticing hurting people. And just, just striking up a conversation. Like, Jesus doesn't necessarily lead with this whole big miraculous kind of thing. He's just kind of asking him, like, hey, I'm wondering, like, do you, do you want to get well? Now, I imagine this guy just, I think this guy's lineage ended up in New Jersey or New York. Like, just classic skepticism here. Right? He doesn't even answer Jesus' questions. Right? He's probably looking at his buddy over here. Hey, new guy here asking, do we want to be healed? Like, what do you think I'm doing here, man? Do I want to be healed? Get this guy, new guy on the block, asking, do I want to be healed? He doesn't even answer his question. I don't have anybody to, to help me. I've got no one to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. While I'm going down, another steps down before me. Jesus is like, get up and walk. Get up and walk. Yo, you think if I could get up and walk, I'd be sitting here? Like, I would go down to the pool and get in. And then I wouldn't need to get up and walk. I could get up and walk. Get up and walk. Look at this guy. And yet, he gets up and walks. He gets up, and Jesus heals him. And it's interesting that Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And this is the problem that the Pharisees have here. At once the man was healed, verse 9, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Did I get started on the Sabbath? Yes, we'll get started on the Sabbath. Right? It is, again, it's interesting that Jesus intentionally says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the whole take up your bed, like that's the thing that the people have a problem with. So the Jews said to the man who was healed, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Like that's the thing you pick out? That's the thing that's like, we got a problem here, guys. He picked up his bed. It's daytime. And he picked up his bed, right? No excitement for healing, no problem with the, the walking, right? What did they expect? Hey, you've been healed, but you've you got you to keep laying there all day. You've got to keep laying there. Or if you want to go sleep somewhere else, you've got to leave your bed there, and hopefully you'll find another bed that's already made for you because you can't do that either. Like, the problem with these guys, right? This reminds me, and I'm not trying to, to bash anybody, but this reminds me of a, a Jewish organization on campus that I came across a number of years ago that they invited... Um, me and a couple other Athletes in Action ministers and some of our Rutgers football guys to their Shabbat dinner on a, on a Friday night. And these guys were freshmen, so they weren't playing in the game the next day, so they had the freedom to go. And it was a really cool experience. This was years before I had any clue that the Sabbath was still a great and healthy and good thing. And we went to this dinner. And the, the Jewish students that were there were just, they were so excited that some football guys were coming. Right? It's kind of the whole big man on campus kind of thing. But what we found out was the other reason they were so excited was because if it's a daytime kickoff on a Saturday, they can't go to the game because, now I don't know what it is now with digital stuff, but they couldn't go to the game because they would have to carry a ticket to the stadium to get into the game. A piece of paper. They couldn't carry it. They couldn't take up their ticket and go to the game. Now, if it was a night kickoff after sundown, they were, it was okay. They could go. 
And again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to bash the Old Testament, but like, that's not Sabbath, guys. That's not rest. That's not delight. I don't think that's what God had intended. He intended for us to rest. And yes, Jesus even said himself that man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. But it's a foretaste of heaven. Right? It's a foretaste. If hope is what we have right now, Sabbath is what we're going to get then. And so why not practice? And again, this was an emotional discipleship 101 for those of you that just went through that. Stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. Those are the four that we often use as kind of the four pillars of a Sabbath. Stop. Stopping work, both paid and unpaid work. For, for 24 hours if you can. I get sometimes in different seasons even, it's got to be a shorter window. What can you block off? What, can you block off a morning? Can you block off a, an eight-hour chunk? Can you trust God for a 24-hour chunk? Where in there is that in your current reality? Rest. What, what gives you rest? Sometimes it's a nap. Sometimes it's a, it's a calmer activity. Delight, what gives you joy? Those are two questions that my family and I, we talk a lot about. What gives us rest? What gives us joy? Some Sabbaths are more restful. Some Sabbaths are more joyful. You can be joyful and exhausted. Sometimes that's what happens. I remember the first time we did a family Sabbath. It was awesome. I think, I think Briley, our, youngest, our, our middle now, but youngest at the time, was like nine months old. Peyton was a, almost two. And it was awesome. It was great. The next Sabbath was a train wreck. It was awful. Many times we have kind of in between there since then. And yet we just keep trying to stop, rest, delight, and then contemplate. Look for those moments like yesterday where I pulled over. And was like, all right, Lord, what's, what's going on? Let me just pause. And what happens in our soul? I'm so glad we did Sabbath for yesterday. Are you kidding? Where God met me in the middle of that. And what he wants to do is refresh us. There's a verse in Exodus as people have come out of slavery from Egypt. And he's God's kind of reminding them again, here's how you worship and here's how you rest. And he's talking about the Sabbath, and it says, it's a sign forever between me, God speaking, and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Isn't there a whole other sermon in that? He was, God was refreshed? Like he didn't need to be. He wasn't tired. But he was refreshed. And that word there is also tied to just taking a breath. I think Sabbath is literally taking a breath of heavenly air. We're going to do that for all eternity. Why not start right now? And yet these guys here, maybe the real New Jerseyans of the day, are all up in arms over this guy taking up his bed and picking it up. And it wasn't even about that, right? It was about, it was about Jesus and their beef with him. But, but before I get back to that, I love what, what Jesus says as, as he sees this guy a little bit later, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him, and yeah, the guy didn't even know who Jesus was, like just, again, this guy, like I don't, he must have, 38 years is a long time, he had to just be so defeated, but afterward, Jesus finds him, what kindness and grace to go back to him, found him in the temple, one commentary this week pointed like, hey, he's, he's moving towards faith in some way, we don't have, we don't necessarily have an a indication that doesn't say that he believed in all his household, but he's in the temple, which is where he would go to to make some sort of offering. It sounds like instead he kind of tries to turn Jesus in. But still, he's in the temple. He's, get, he's getting there. And Jesus says, see your well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And again, this guy's probably thought, who is this guy? Nothing worse? What could be worse than sitting there for 38 years and no one helping me? What could be worse than that? What's Jesus talking about? Ultimately, he's talking about the result of sin. Now, there's... 
elsewhere Jesus does say, in another, in another healing, he says, it's not because of sin that this man was born blind. That's another, another healing. And so he's not necessarily even saying here, well, because you sinned, that's why you were the way you were for 38 years. Right? Not every suffering is a direct result of sin. Sometimes it very much is, whether it's our own sin or the sin done to us. But in general, suffering exists because of sin, because of brokenness is here because of sin, because of Adam and Eve, because of every one of us. But it's not always a direct parallel necessarily, and I don't even think that's the point. Jesus is saying, hey, I healed your body. I want to make sure that you let me heal your soul. Right? Because the worst that could happen, the worst that could happen is that you would spend not 38 years, but a lot longer than that separated from God. If you don't take me at my word here in this life. Because the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but, but spiritual death. That's what sin does. So how then can we be saved? How are we, how do we even have a chance? Because of what Jesus says in 17 and 18, that he says, my father is working. Again, this is when the guys come back to him and they're persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, hey, my father's working until now and I am working. Basically, I've got the divine exemption from the Sabbath. I'm the one that gets a free pass on the Sabbath. Why? Because I'm God in the flesh. And therein lies our hope of salvation, that Jesus was God in the flesh. That he was the one who came to do all of the work and take all of our sin on himself and die on a cross so that we could rest, so that we could have hope. And then in verse 18, John, I love that he does this. He does this throughout. This, you know, we, we've mentioned from up here a ton that there's always more going on than meets the eye. Sometimes John leaves it for us to kind of figure out and, and work through. Other times he just gives it to us. And this is one of his, his commentaries here. He says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath. That's worthy of death enough. But he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So he's, he's clearly stating that he is God. And anytime anybody says, hey, I'm God, like we've got to do something with that. Now, most of the times that happens, it just kind of fizzles out. There had been lots of other people back in this day that had claimed to be God. And then they died. And then that was it. Right? And they were doing all the miracles and stuff. But Jesus here claims to be God. He's doing miracles. We've got to do something with that. Maybe you've heard of this before, but there's really only three options. He's either Lord, like he is who he says he is, he's telling the truth, or he's a liar, meaning, he, and he knows he's telling a, an untruth, or he's a lunatic, like he actually thinks he is, but he's not. That's it. There's only three options. We can't just say, like, oh, Jesus was a good teacher and, you know, kind of a good leader. Like, no, you look at the other things that he says, take up your cross and follow me. That's not a good teacher, unless you're Lord. So it's one of those three. That's it. And when he died, like a lot of other people who said, I'm God, looked like he was a, a liar and a lunatic. All the Pharisees were like, yeah, see? This guy, we told you. And then Easter Sunday, and the resurrection comes, and he's alive, and he's Lord. And this is the other really cool thing about chapter 4, verse 50. The sign of the resurrection that sealed the deal here. In verse 50, back in, that first, back in that first healing, let's put that back up there. Chapter 4, verse 50. This is where the guy asks him again, and Jesus says, Go, your son will live. And, yeah, again, one of the commentaries, right? I told you about the week that I had. I had to rely a lot on a lot of commentaries this week. 
one of the commentaries said, hey, this is actually, this is not a really good English translation of what's happening here. The actual word for will live in the Greek is Z-E, with a little line over it, over the E. Now, I'm a, I was a math major, right? So I don't know about the English and the words and the letters and all that stuff. Um, and so I don't even know how to say it right. I'm not even going to try. But Z-E, with a little line over the E, whatever that's called, that word is actually better translated, he lives. Present, present tense. It's a present tense word. It's not a will live. It's not when you get home. Right in this moment when Jesus says, sir, come down before my child died, Jesus said to him, go. He lives. That's the better translation. Not like you got to keep hoping, and when you get there, maybe he'll still. He lives right now. He lives. Even that changes the whole dynamic. And yet, Jesus himself is the he lives. Because of the resurrection, he is the one that's alive and well. That's how we can be saved. And his he livesness stretches from Galilee to Cana and all across the world and from heaven down to earth right now to every one of your lives, wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, whether you're in the middle of a dark, deep, waiting, hoping, or whether you're on the other side of it and you've got a real sense of like you can feel it in your bones right now, or maybe that's still coming up. He lives. He is the one that ultimately lives. That's what seals the deal. That's what gives him permission to say, I'm God. And so we've seen many here that have taken Jesus at his word. We've seen many that have not taken Jesus at his word. Over the last couple of weeks as we've been journeying through these, these stories, right, and we see here nothing worth may happen. How is it that our souls are healed? It's by taking Jesus, the one and only God who is alive at his word. He is our hope, and one day, we won't have to hope anymore. We'll get to look on him face to face. No longer needing hope, because we too will live. My encouragement and prayer is that we would keep asking and waiting and hoping and asking and asking until we get to that day. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thanks that you are the one who heals. You heal our bodies, um, and yet, more importantly, you heal our souls. You heal our souls, and sometimes it's really hard when you don't heal our bodies, when we cry out, like I did this week, Lord, for healing, for peace, for all the things, and yet you are so faithful to walk with us in the midst of that, Lord. You also did that this week for me, and I trust you're doing it for so many others here in this room in all the kinds of things that they need. God, thanks that you, uh, you don't grow impatient at our asking, Lord. You invite us to ask and ask and ask. That doesn't wear you out, Lord. And so oh, I pray that you would give us the courage, the grace that we need to keep hoping. Lord, to even, dare we, we call you out on your promises, Lord, when it doesn't seem like they're coming true? And would you give us faith like this, Father, to turn and go home? Because we believe. Jesus, thanks that you would give us these gifts of these stories so that we could know that you are the one true God who is indeed alive. Would that truth sink deeper into our soul and our minds and our bodies and our beings? In Jesus' name, amen.